ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Afternoon, happy Friday. Selena Green with you today. We'll find out in a moment just how much revenue South Australia's agribusinesses have brought in in the past year. And like Taylor Swift, we're breaking records. Sorry, I had to get in at least one reference today. Ed, have you ever been a victim of crime on your farm? Did you report it? If not, why not? Let me know on my talkback number, 1300 222 or the text line 0467 because data shows that farm crime is on the up, but not all of it's being reported to police. Stock theft, diesel theft, break and enter into properties, trespass, illegal hunting, all these issues uh, once again appear uh, very apparent and considerable for farmers across, uh, across the country. That's all to come shortly, but first today, despite a number of challenges faced by nearly all of South Australia's primary industries, the state still managed to set another record-breaking year for agribusiness. Today's release of the primary industry scorecard shows revenue of $18.5 billion in 2022-23, with increases in crop value, forestry, seafood and dairy. But not all sectors had a great year. Uh, joining me is the Minister for Primary Industries, Claire Scriven. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Selena. So essentially this is what a, a scorecard, a 12-month period that we're looking back on here around the value of agriculture. How do you put this together? Uh, that's right. So it comes um, from a variety of different sources, but this is for 2022-23. And what's really exciting is that it's uh, showing a record boost to our economy from our primary industries and agribusinesses. So we're now at um, 185 billion dollars in revenue, which is an increase of 7% on the previous year. So that's huge. Um, And again, we are responsible for uh, more than half of the state's merchandise exports. That's coming from the the, uh, agriculture and agribusiness sector. So that's huge. And I think it really does underpin how important all of our primary industries are to the state. What has mainly driven that increase in the past 12 months? So a big part of it has been the record grain harvest and, of course, there's been strong global commodity prices for grain, uh, partly due, of course, to the very unfortunate situation uh, with the war in Ukraine. Uh, but that has meant that there's been uh, uh, you know, less supply and uh, still the same demand for, uh, for grain. So that's been a big part of it. Uh, and field crop revenue has been up uh, 39%, so that's $7.76 billion alone. So that's some big figures on um, the other... Uh, areas that have increased have included forestry up five percent, uh, and also the seafood sector is up five percent. So uh, there's been some increase in the prices for southern rock lobster, although they're still, of course, a long way away from where they were before the closure of the China market. Uh, and also, bluefin tuna is up as well. Yeah. So those challenges with uh, getting back into the Chinese market for different commodities. You mentioned the war on Ukraine. There have, have they been still the, the real key challenges? Uh, look, I think it's fair to say, to say they have, um, in addition to things like you know, inflation and um, increasing uh, input costs and interest rates. So there's always a lot of challenges, as we know, across the agricultural sectors, uh, but they are very resilient and this result shows 
published a whole lot of articles. So, you know, how much work continues to go in? It, it can be taken a bit for granted, I think, sometimes, you know, that we've always got food on the shelf and, uh, and milk in the fridge. Um, but all of that happens only because of the hard work of all of our agricultural communities across the state. We're pretty much... Was this pretty consistent? Did all of the the key ag sectors here in the state see an increase in the past 12 months? Uh, Look, most of them have, either um, big ones, like we've mentioned with grain, or small ones. Of course, wine is uh, the exception, as we would, I think most people would be aware of. The global oversupply of red wine is continuing to have an impact. So that's a big, um, that's the outlier, I guess, in terms of not recording an increase. Uh, and also, horticulture uh, didn't do quite so well, uh, but that was mainly due to declines in the almond and citrus sectors. So, um, yeah, overall, very, very good results for South Australia. And one thing that's particularly interesting, actually, is for the first time, Indonesia has surpassed China as our biggest export market for agriculture and food exports. So, um, I think that's really, really quite interesting. China is still very big, uh, but Indonesia has surpassed it, and also there's been huge increases. Uh, in exports to India, they're up 182%, and Thailand up 131%. Does this all reflect in employment numbers in these sectors as well? Uh, yes, it does. So um, employment is up, but also, as we very well know, demand is um, outstripping supply, and so labour shortages continue to be a challenge. Uh, but the total employment for prime industries, and uh, also including like the associated processing and so on, uh, reached around about 78,000 jobs on a, a full-time equivalent basis. So that, that is really huge and, again, underlines how important these industries are to our state. What's the, the projection uh, looking ahead for this coming year that we're into now? I mean, can it continue to grow? Uh, look, I think it can. I think we're cautiously optimistic is probably the best way of putting that, um, in that we are expecting uh, grains in particular to remain strong. We're doing a lot of work around uh, trying to strengthen our relationships again with China, which will hopefully have some positive impact on wine if that does come to fruition, and also on uh, lobster and therefore the seafood sector. Uh, And uh, I think there's a lot of work going into continuing to expand, to innovate. So uh, I think the the outlook is, is quite positive. Minister, thanks for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you. Claire Scriven there, the Minister for Primary Industries and Regional Development. It's 11 minutes past 12. Well, the most comprehensive survey into farm crime in Australia has started to release some preliminary results and it suggests that farm thefts are up. But the survey conducted by the University of New England Centre for Rural Criminology needs more responses. They want to hear from you. Project lead Dr Kyle Mulrooney told Elsie Adamo that this survey is needed to help fill some knowledge gaps and some big gaps when it comes to rural crime prevalence across the country. The Centre for Rural Criminology captured the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021. But barring that, there's a little bit of data out of Victoria and really nothing for the rest of the country. Uh, We work fairly closely with the rural crime prevention team here in New South Wales. Through them and through our own research, we know that farm crime and rural crime in Australia is is a national problem. It's not isolated to New South Wales and Victoria, not by a long shot. And so we wanted to try to understand this issue on a national level and really, really collect that important data that will help us address the issue in other states where we really have a a dark figure and and no clear understanding of the problem in these areas. But we know anecdotally and we know from victim experiences uh, covered in the media and addressed by the police that that it's a a big issue for farmers uh, all around Australia. 
And how much longer of the study is left to go and uh, have you been getting enough responses so far? Yeah, so the response rate has been absolutely fantastic. I think naturally so. The uptake has been in uh, those larger states uh, like New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, where we have uh, a bit of information. So we're leaving the survey open a little bit longer in the hopes that we can collect more data out of other states, uh, especially South Australia, Tasmania, Western Australia, Northern Territories, uh, where we just don't have a historical picture. And so we want to make sure that we're capturing that with sufficient detail, uh, specifically sufficient statistical detail. Our goal here is to understand farm crime at a national level, but also to understand it at an individual level, and that is at the individual level uh, of the state. So we want to understand what does farm crime look like in South Australia. It's important that we, we understand these unique pictures so that we address it appropriately, so that we can empower policymakers, police, and other actors that, that engage with these issues, including the farmers themselves, with the information they need on the ground to actually address these issues. As the survey is ongoing, you might not know yet, but would you suspect there are any major differences when it comes to farm crime between the states? Um, I think you'll find differences based upon a variety of variables. So what is farmed? What are the predominant uh, uh, farming uh, industries, of course, will we'll highlight various aspects and, and, and various offences that are unique to certain, certain areas. I mean, you find that even within states. Uh, you know, where there's high levels of different types of farming. There'll be local characteristics that would very much shape that, proximity to major cities, different experiences across such a large country in terms of weather-related events like drought and these types of things that will definitely be attuned to when we're interpreting the data. But I have no doubt that what you'll find is that farm crime is a problem across each and every state and, and amongst farmers there, that they're facing these issues, that they have been facing them for a long time, And so I think that will be an an unfortunate but universal finding. And are there any preliminary results you can share? Out of the ones that we can sort of definitively, in terms of statistical representation, talk about, unfortunately, it looks like business as usual in those states. For instance, the New South Wales Farm Crime Survey in 2021, if we look at the New South Wales data for this national survey, of which we have a lot, we actually see elevations in victimization. So we see a greater number of farmers actually reporting victimization. So New South Wales Farm Crime Survey, around 81% reported experiencing victimization in their lifetime. Um, That is, they were a victim of crime on their farm. And in this survey, we're looking at uh, the higher 80s now. We see repeat victimizations quite high. So farmers experiencing crimes on numerous occasions across the lifetime. We've also looked at elevations of specific types of crimes in the last two years, particularly diesel theft and these types of issues, which again relate to changes in the economy, you know, wars the world over caused diesel prices to increase here, and you see a subsequent uh, spike in these types of thefts. So right now it's all preliminary as we haven't closed the survey. So we'll have data, of course, still pouring in from uh, New South Wales and elsewhere. But it's looking like uh, what we hypothesize that it would be an issue and you would see growth in, in, in other areas. And I mean, that aligns with a lot of the, the anecdotal data that we've been getting, a lot of the conversations with the police we've had or the media stories where you're seeing, particularly if we home in on stock theft, quite high level, sophisticated thefts of tens, hundreds and sometimes thousands of livestock uh, missing. And that's sort of bearing out in the data, these types of experiences around the quintessential Euro, uh, rural crime that is stock theft, but also, like I said, diesel theft, 
break and enter into properties, trespass, illegal hunting, all these issues uh, once again appear uh, very apparent and considerable for farmers across, uh, across the country. Has there been any improvement with farmers wanting to discuss this issue? I know in the past the ABC has had problems getting farmers to go on the record to admit that they've been targeted, they might not think it's worth bothering, or they don't want to make themselves even a bigger target in future. Is that at all starting to change? Yeah, so there's a couple of layers to that. I mean, we know from our research, past and present, that there are a variety of reasons why farmers don't report. You hit the nail on the head for a few there. They just don't want to bother. They don't have confidence that anything will be done. There's also an indication that there's a lot of worry around reprisal, that is, that the offender will come back uh, and cause issues for them should they report. Sometimes these matters are sort of local matters, and offender and victim are known to each other in these types of issues. In terms of responding to the survey, we've been very lucky that we did a lot of legwork in advance where we hooked up with different peak bodies, so New South Wales Farmers Federation and, and, and those that are, are peak bodies in various states and had their support to share these surveys and get the word out to farmers. So that has really helped with the response, where typically you're absolutely right. It's just sort of trying to communicate the value of, of this type of data um, down the line and helping farmers. From a policing perspective, we've seen really, really great success in New South Wales. That advent of that rural crime prevention team in, in late 2017, early 2018, where you have a team that is, I guess, industry experts, but also come with the cultural knowledge that typical police might not have around farming, how it works, what it is, that rams are livestock and not an American pickup truck, these types of things. And so in our survey, particularly in New South Wales, we're able to test farmers' interaction and perceptions of this team. And we see that when they engage with a team like this, that again, has that cultural and industry knowledge, they are much more confident in the police and therefore much more likely to actually report crime. So there are a variety of sort of angles to this, but that's a, a very positive outcome in terms of engaging farmers, not just in you know talking about their stories of victimization and, and providing us with that important data, but also at the end of the day, getting this information to the police so that they can do something about it and instilling confidence in farmers that the police can actually do something about it. At Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of New England and Co-Director of the Centre for Rural Criminology, Dr Carl Mulrooney, he was speaking there to Elsie Adamo. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Right now it's 19 minutes past 12. Well, those living in far west New South Wales, an area characterised as rangeland, certainly be subject to extreme conditions. So for those on the land, when a resilience roadshow heads their way, it's a great opportunity to meet up to learn more about adapting to the various conditions thrown at them. From grazing management to water efficiency, Land Services Officer at Western Local Land Services, Courtney Lallard, well, she told Lily McCure that they'll cover a range of topics that are relevant to all. I think uh, we all know farmers are very resilient, especially out here. So I think any excuse to sort of get everyone together and um, bring some new speakers and some different topics to areas that uh, may not have seen um, some workshops in a little while. Um, face-to-face is always really nice um, after the last few years of online interaction. So just getting out there and, and meeting our landholders, some old faces and some new, hopefully, as well. Speakers that you're having at these events, who will they include and what is their sort of expertise? Yeah, we've got a great lineup of speakers for these events. Um, we've got Hugh Pringle from Ecosystem Management Understanding. Uh, he'll be 
talking about ecosystem function, um, looking at what makes a healthy landscape and touching on some plant species information as well. And we've got Donald Matheson. Uh, he's going to be doing the business finances, uh, sort of talking about getting your business into shape and um, knowing those financial levers to make decisions. We've also got Jeff and Joe who are LLS um, drought adoption officers. They're coming out to talk about water efficiency and quality in the rangeland. So looking at evaporation rates out here and um, how to do a water test and read those results. We've got Christine and I from uh, Western LLS talking about grazing management. Land Services Officer at Western Local Land Services, Courtney Lallard. Agriculture Finance Specialist Donald Matheson is one of the speakers who will be presenting at the workshops. He says it's important to listen to the landholders and cover information that will be most relevant to those in the rangelands. In my professional line, I do a lot of consultancy-based work um, in the agricultural industry across all, you know, everything from cropping through to Westerners grazing um, and I suppose I just specialise in consulting people in terms of their finance structure um, you know, their overall financial position, how to present themselves in the best light to the bank, um, you know, what sort of information the bank needs. So I suppose I can, it's more of like a bit of a liaison type role where I, yeah, where I help people deal with banks, basically. What sort of topics, I guess, are you going to be covering at, at these roadshows? What I wanted to do is put something together around the questions that are most often asked of me. You know, when I sit down and talk to a client or a prospective client, what are the general questions that they want to know about. So, you know, pretty much you know, how does the banking industry work? What's their service proposition now? You know, how do I present myself better to the bank in terms of, you know, dealing with my finances? Um, so it's really, I suppose, an educational presentation around, you know, how the bank would view your business, how do you improve your relationship with your bank, um, you know, what information is critical that you need to make sure you've got to be able to provide to your bank, um, and then understanding the long-term viability of your business in terms of how the bank looks at it. In these, uh, I guess, pretty remote areas, how important is it for graziers to have this information? Look, I think it's, it's, it is well, it's invaluable because it's the sort of information when you're out in an isolated area, you haven't got the benefit. Well, most of the time you're probably dealing even with dealing with your bank or your accountant, you're dealing with them over the phone. Um, you, know, you don't get a lot of face-to-face discussions. So you don't really get a lot of opportunity in terms of you know, having to be able to interact with someone and, and be able to ask real lifetime questions around you know, anything that they're talking about. So I think the, you know, the roadshow thing from, a, from an isolated area perspective just gives people an opportunity to interact. And you know, if they're not really sure about something that's been spoken about, spoken about, it just gives them an opportunity to ask the question and, and you know, to be able to thoroughly understand the information that they're being given. And I guess for you as well, uh, what are you hoping to get out of this uh, roadshow trip? You know, I, I do a lot of travel with my work already, but um, just to get around the area, just have a look and see, you know, what the seasonal conditions are like at the moment in the grazing areas. Um, obviously, there's a fair bit of variability still. Some areas look extremely good. Some areas are still, you know, probably want a little bit more rain, but just to get around and, and just have a chat to some people in the areas and see how they're going in that specific area. 
That is Agriculture Finance Specialist Donald Matheson speaking to Lily McEwer. You can RSVP to the workshops by contacting your local land services or through the website uh, for those Rangeland Resilience Roadshows. The first one kicks off on Monday the 19th at Wentworth, so that's next Monday. There's one on Tuesday at Ivanhoe, one on Thursday at Burke and on Saturday the 24th at Packsaddle. With the ABC Listen app, you can take the cricket with you anywhere you go. Off to the beach. Take the cricket. Road trip. Take the cricket. Museum visit. Shh, take the cricket. Seriously? You want to listen? <laughs> ABC Sports, expert coverage of every test. Big shout, he's out. One day up. Australia is celebrating. And T20. Over the rope for another six. Live and commercial free. So whatever you're up to this summer, take the cricket with you and listen big on the ABC Listen app. You're with Selena Green, 25 minutes past 12. Let's head to the Weather Bureau and John Fisher is our forecaster today. Hello, John. G'day, Selena. What's it looking like across the state today? Yeah, look, uh, much of the same. So we've, uh, yeah, look, seeing the sunny conditions pretty much across the board and uh, obviously dry as well. Uh, temperatures starting to come up, though. So uh, after a mild a few days across the state, uh, we, we are seeing those temperatures now returning to kind of near or, or above average uh, today. Uh, but, uh, yeah, look, the, the general pattern over the, the next few days uh, isn't shifting too much. So we're, we're stuck with a fairly broad ridge of high pressure across the south of the continent uh, which is the the dominant driver at the moment um, and that's keeping most places fine uh, there is also an inland trough in the, the far northeast and with some moisture from Queensland there, there may be the odd uh, shower or thunderstorm up through some of those far northern parts uh, over the the weekend um, or even today as well but uh, yeah going to be pretty hit and miss and, and not too uh, significant so yeah look really just more of this uh, similar pattern and, and temperatures starting to, to climb uh, over the weekend so for Saturday probably looking at uh, those temperatures around the three to seven degrees above average so uh, yeah, yeah really starting to, to warm up uh, into the kind of low to, to mid 30s generally and, and even uh, into the, the high 30s further north and and then by Sunday and Monday uh, it's probably around that five to ten degrees uh, above average generally across the, the state so um, yeah certainly getting a bit of heat there and it's uh, generating a fairly broad uh, low intensity heat wave um, but doesn't look like it's gonna uh, get any worse than that so the those temperatures are kind of going to uh, hover in that territory and maybe even uh, come down uh, a degree or two as we, we move through kind of uh, next Tuesday. And, and that's because that trough in the north does kind of deepen a little bit. So we, we may see some some uh, fairly, slightly stronger onshore flow there, uh, just, just dropping those temperatures back a, a little bit. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, really the, there's no rainfall um, in sight. So apart from those storms in the north where we may see some uh, isolated daily totals up to around that kind of five or ten millimeter uh, mark um, yeah look across the, the south we, we are dry and uh, look it's really been probably uh, around Australia Day um, last month when we had our last significant rain and, and since there this kind of uh, dry patterns really become uh, entrenched and, and looks to, to can continue for at least the uh, the next week uh, Selena so uh, yeah, look, over the weekend, still seeing some sea breezes um, uh, around the coastal parts, but nothing that's uh, generated any warnings, so kind of just remaining in that moderate or, or uh, fresh range. Um, so, yeah, look, no warnings uh, apart from the uh, the inland rivers, uh, which uh, is going to continue for, for quite some time. Uh, obviously, still some water around uh, the, the Cooper Creek at Inaminka, and uh, uh, we're starting to see some water uh, come in on the, the Diamantina there, which looks like the, the peak of that flood is, uh, uh, or just started 
starting to reach Birdsville now. So uh, that'll be an ongoing thing. But uh, other than that, no no warning, Selena, and just starting to, to warm up. Thanks for that, John. Have a great Friday. Yeah, you too. Thanks. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. Now looking at the western inland of New South Wales and the forecast for Saturday for the upper western district, mostly sunny, slight chance of a shower in the southeast, near zero chance elsewhere. It's a chance of a thunderstorm in the southeast in the late afternoon and evening. Northeasterly winds 15 to 20 k's an hour becoming light in the middle of the day and turning easterly 15 to 20 k's an hour in the early afternoon. For the lower western district, a mostly sunny day also with a slight chance of a shower in the far east in the afternoon and evening. Near zero chance of rain elsewhere and the chance of a thunderstorm there in the northeast in the afternoon and evening. Light winds for the lower western district tomorrow. Now for both districts, temperature wise we're looking to fall into to the low 20s or high teens overnight and those daytime temperatures expected to reach the mid to high 30s. It is coming up to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. In this next half an hour, how prepared are you if a bushfire was to break out in your neighbourhood? today. Uh, well, some interesting research coming out of the CFS about uh, well, some of the different attitudes as you head around the state. And what does the water buyback situation mean for water prices? We'll have a look at that as well. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Afternoon. Hope your Friday's going great. Lots of talk this week, again, about water buybacks out of the Murray-Darling. And the government announced the other day how much it's spending on this round of tenders. In a moment, you'll hear more about what this could mean for water prices here in Australia. Also coming up, what's your plan if a bushfire was to threaten your home? Stay and defend? Leave early? Have you got a plan at all? I hopefully hope you do. Some new research that's come out today from the Country Fire Service shows just how attitudes differ across different parts of South Australia. And not everyone's as prepared for fire as you'd like. We found overall that a higher number of participants indicated that they would stay and defend as opposed to leaving early. That is a bit concerning, especially given that the findings demonstrated that more people assume they will have enough time to leave, which we know uh, from experience isn't always the case. So just how prepared are you? Apparently, you fall into one of eight archetypes that this research has identified, so stick around to see where you fit. But I would like to hear from you, how well prepared do you think you are, really? If you intend to stay and defend your home, what kind of plans have you put in place? My talkback number today is 1300 222 or the text line is 0467 922 More on that research coming soon, but here's Chris McLaughlin with today's headlines. Hello, Chris. Hello, Selena. Israeli forces have raided a hospital in Gaza, killing a patient and wounding six others. A spokesman says the raid in Khan Yunus was prompted by credible information that Hamas was hiding in the facility, had kept hostages there, and that bodies of hostages might still be there. A former senior Defence Force executive has been fined in the South Australian District Court for illegally accessing classified Defence Department documents. 
46-year-old Anthony Gregory Furman pleaded guilty to unauthorised access to restricted data. The court heard he accessed the Defence Department's IT system to look up more than 200 Defence Department files. Victorian authorities have confirmed that 44 properties were destroyed in the town of Pomonal after bushfires in the state's Grampians region on Tuesday. They say windstorms on Tuesday also destroyed 16 houses in the Gippsland region where many thousands of properties remain without power. The South Australian Transport Minister has approved the use of QR code tickets across Adelaide's metro services. The tickets will be generated by an Adelaide metro app and validated by holding a mobile phone near a validator. More ABC News at one o'clock. Thanks, Chris. Chris McLaughlin with those headlines. Now, if you were listening in yesterday, you would have heard the Federal Water Minister, Tanya Plibersek, talking about the cost of the new round of water buybacks from the Murray-Darling Basin. The federal government's going to be spending $205 million to permanently return 26 gigalitres of water to the environment per year. So what could this do to water prices or sales? Rural Co water broker John Armstrong told Julie Kimberley there are plenty of irrigators who are willing to sell. There are a group of irrigators, you know, particularly in the Riverland there, uh, who because of market conditions in, you know, in wine grapes uh, and those sorts of industries that are, you know, considering a way out uh, for their future, right? Whether they want to keep farming or whether they want to, you know, get out. And, and being able to sell their water entitlement is a good way to fund, you know, their retirement and, and to get out of the industry. And it, uh, right at now, the, the Commonwealth is basically the only buyer in the market. Every, every other buyer has pulled back on pricing, so the, the way the government has done this last round that was only in New South Wales, you know, has, has given the market indication of potentially what they're going to pay in the future. And it has made irrigators who are, who are considering a future away from the industry, uh, they're like, well, maybe I can sell my water to the Commonwealth and, and get a premium. Do you think the recent rain has contributed to that? Uh, not really. It's, it's so that the rain has, you know, the weather and the rain has a lot of impact on, on the temporary allocation price, what the irrigator is paying day to day. But the actual ownership and the entitlement price is really driven by other factors, driven by the ability for people to pay for it. And that's probably the biggest driver, downward pressure on prices at the minute. Just, you know, it's and, it, and, and industries, right? You know, people are seeing the, the stress that the wine grape industry is under and table grapes and others. And they're just going, well, geez, maybe, maybe it's a good time to get out and sell water. And that's driven that price down. Is anyone saying that they want to sell water, you know, for the water recovery of the environment? So most, we, I have a couple of little clients uh, who, who are saying that, right? They're like, no, no, we want to sell our water to the environment, you know, to do that. Most people who are selling are going, how can I generate the best return? And it's, it's a matter of, right, I can sell on the market at, you know, price A, or I can sell to the Commonwealth at price B, which from all reports is a significant premium. This $205 million figure, is that a figure you will expect will potentially encourage people to sell? Who so, yeah. you, know, you know, people who were on the fence. Do you think the price that they're getting for the water will encourage them to sell? I think you know the the, the word going out there is that you know the Commonwealth under bridging the gap last year paid you know anywhere from eighteen to twenty five percent above the market price at the time. Now, none of this is confirmed yet because the government haven't released the actual volumes that they've bought. But this is what what intel that's out there in the market, right? That, that irrigators are telling their friends that they, you know, sold this much water and got this much for it. So people have worked out they're paying this. And irrigators, sellers, especially those on the fence who might have a bit of spare water or who, you know, who got who retired farmers who've sold their property, kept their water going and haven't got a good return for that because of how wet it's been over the last few years. They're going, well, hang on, I can sell it to the Commonwealth and I can make this big premium on top of what it's worth. 
and I can do something else with that money. Now, was the dollar amount surprising to you or did your industry already have a fair idea of how much the government might need to pay? I think the industry had a fair idea of what the government would have to pay to achieve its target. You know, and, and when you know we were advising clients, uh, clients would come to us, we'd say, well, look, you can sell on the market at this price or you can sell to the government. Now, the government is a known buyer who, who has a target to buy a certain volume. So essentially, you know, it's what the market would call a captive buyer. So I'm like, we, you could sell on the market at this and get your money now or you, you play the game with government tenders and, you know, if you wanted to, you could offer it at a premium because they're either going to... Like for the for the seller, there's no loss. They can sell it to the government at that premium, or they can sell it on the market at, at whatever the market rate is. So most chose to enter that water at a premium. So there was this expectation in our industry beforehand that the government would have to pay a premium to get it. And the federal government only got 26 of the 43 gigalitres it requested. Did that surprise you? No, I think when so some intel came out of the market late last year earlier this year about what sort of water they'd bought and the fact that particularly in New South Wales the feeling amongst the industry was that their target along the Murray so the 10 gigs they were looking to recover along the Murray that their target would be general security entitlement. Uh, When it came out that they'd bought high security entitlement which is you know at the time of the tenders general security entitlement was worth around $2,600 a megalitre and high security is worth around $9,000 a megalitre. The fact that they were willing to pay so much more to get towards their target, indicated that they probably hadn't been offered enough of the water that they really wanted at the price they wanted, so that they would, they, you know, and even though the minister said in October last year that they'd been offered double what they wanted, and then when it came out, the products they'd bought, it, it indicated to us that, you know, they didn't get offered enough where they needed it, and perhaps this, this extra water that had been offered were in valleys that they weren't targeting. So let's not forget that bridging the gap was really only New South Wales and a little bit of Queensland. So it's potentially that, and I know, irrigators in Victoria who offered water into that tender, knowing that they weren't going to be successful, but just, you know, speculatively, or maybe they'll take it. So I think the fact that the government didn't achieve their target wasn't a surprise to industry. Uh, and I think it'll be an indicator going forward uh, to further buybacks that perhaps they'll struggle to reach, to achieve that target. Is there a fear from those who don't want to sell, those who will remain irrigating, that they will bear the brunt of less people, but the same expectations of industry? Yes. There is. And I think there is, there is a real risk to industry and those who stay in the industry uh, from these buybacks and just in, in terms of water availability in the future and, and what water is available to them. So, you know, in a wet year, like we've just had three slash four wet years in a row, it's not been a concern. But in those dry years, with the amount of permanent plantings, so that's things like wine grapes, citrus, almonds, other nuts that are, that are, in, that are planted and are mature in our stretch of the river, right? So in South Australia, where you guys are, um, through Victoria and New South Wales, there's so many permanent plantings in the ground now that if if the buybacks going forward, so the 450 gig, for example, if that isn't thought about carefully and spread out across the basin, if most of that comes from below the choke, the potential of shortfall for available water in a dry year is huge. So mm. already now, before any buybacks, if there's a particularly dry year, we are about potentially between 350 and 400 gigs short of water available for permanent planting. And just to wrap up, as more people make their way through the wine vintage and some people actually make a loss this year, are you expecting there will be an uptick in sell, in particular in the coming months? Yeah, I think there will be. We've already seen that um, through the last probably even coming into this vintage. Growers made the call early and decided to sell and bring water to market and not grow and, and to and there will be I think as we see 
more growers now who go through this vintage, make a loss, or even don't make anything, right? Like we're already hearing from from wine grape growers locally that there's some guys who have been told verbally that their wines will be bought, but they've got nothing in ink. You know, they, they might not even sell their, their, their grapes. You know, I think they will have to look at where they own entitlement, uh, particularly those growers who've got debt that they need to service. Uh, they'll look at it as a way to, to continue to generate cash flow for their business if they want to continue in the industry. That's John Armstrong speaking there. He's a water broker from Rural Co Water and he was speaking with Julie Kimberley. Takes us to 20 minutes to one. Australia's potato industry is now worth more than $1 billion. That's a lot of spuds and plenty of them growing right here in South Australia. The latest data shows the industry continues to produce around 1.4 million tonnes of potatoes a year, but its production value has increased by a whopping 24%, pushing it above the $1 billion mark for the first time. The acting chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump, says there's been a lot of investment in the potato sector, which is paying off. Look, it's really exciting. Our, our industry has grown considerably in the last few years, and it's largely driven through the investment the industry has been making over the last few years in automation and in innovation. Um, we've seen many of the processing companies, McCain's, Pepsi, uh, Stack Brands, Land Western, Simplot, they've all made major investments to their, uh, their infrastructure. We're seeing the same thing in the fresh sector, the Pie Group uh, and the Matolo Group have, have both in, uh, made major investments. And, and that's, that's extended right throughout the industry. Is this increase in value flowing back into the pockets of farmers? It's always a challenge. I mean, we're always looking for greater efficiencies to make sure that the farmers are getting greater rate of return, and it's 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 a constant challenge. Uh, and that's one of the the key drivers of Potatoes Australia is to make sure that the entire supply chain is challenged to look where there are greater efficiencies. So, is that a, a yes or a no in terms of if it's a good time to be a potato farmer or not? Look, it is a great time to be a potato farmer. Uh, that. It is, it is a number one cash crop. So potato farmers are always looking for more, but it's also driven by uh, looking for greater efficiencies in how you do, do business. And that's what a lot of the investment that's happening is because growers need to be more efficient in how they can grow potatoes. So the industry has now cracked a billion dollars in value for the first time going forward. Um, what's your thoughts? Uh, look, I, I think it's just exciting time to be in the industry. The um, one of the one of the big challenges I think we've got is food waste. There's going to be a big challenge throughout the industry. So trying to actually see where where we can fit that in the supply chain and getting better return from the growers R and D levy. I think that's going to be a big challenge moving forward as well. We haven't seen a lot of investment from innovation in the potato industry in over ten years, and so the growers would actually like to see their uh, their levy spend put back into the industry. Potatoes Australia. We're actually hosting the World Potato Congress here in June in Adelaide. It should be a fantastic event with uh, people from all around the world, over a 1,000 delegates. So it's a really exciting time to be in the Australian potato industry. Yeah, that's over a 1,000 people coming to talk spuds in Adelaide later this year for the World Potato Congress. That is Acting Chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump. He was speaking there to Matt Brand. According to the latest edition of the Australian Horticultural Statistics Handbook, 87% of Aussie households buy potatoes. I would have thought it'd been higher than that. Uh, the industry grows enough for each Australian to consume 16.6 kilograms of spud each year, uh, but we're sending a lot overseas as well. The biggest export markets for Australian potatoes are South Korea and the Philippines. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia, and Broken Hill. 
You're with Selena Green on this Friday, and this is the Country Hour. Let's head across the border now. A severe storm that ripped through Victoria's southeast has left a trail of destruction across farms in the south and west Gippsland regions. Sadly, it was confirmed that a Mibu North dairy farmer died while mustering cattle on Tuesday night when he was hit by flying debris. At Colville, which is just north of Mirbu North, that caught the worst of the storm cell. And there, Lisa Hilbrick got the fright of her life when she was bringing her cows in for milking. My 11-year-old and myself were decided to go get the milkers a little bit earlier that um, particular day because the storm was coming. And usually we always lose power here. And as we were bringing the cows closer to the shed, I commented to my 11-year-old, look at the formation of those clouds. It was the most unusual swirling um, motion of clouds I've ever seen. And we weren't very far from the cow shed and we were bringing the milkers up the laneway and an almighty powerful gust of wind picked up and twisted the top of a cypress tree out which landed on our milkers in the laneway. Um, very close to hitting me under the tree. And we had several cows stuck under the cypress tree. Unfortunately, one died pretty much straight away. We've got one that is down and doesn't look like she's going to get up. And we had several with fairly serious um, cuts and swelling and that on their faces and legs. One got caught in the barbed wire fence. We've got numerous trees down on fences. We've got no power. We had to dump milk. Very, very limited phone reception. Um, it was quite scary. I'm running a generator just to keep the fridge going at the house and the pressure pump because all our property runs on pressure pumps, which is power. Lisa, yeah. that must have been really scary, particularly the moment the tree fell. Very scary, considering my 11-year-old usually likes to run up behind the milkers to push them up onto the yard for me. And to think that, you know, he could have being um, seriously injured or killed under that tree as, long as, as well as myself was terrifying. Oh, I bet. Um, I bet, Lisa. Uh, we, how, how has he been since since that moment? Um, he's, actually, he's not too bad. I've got a, an older son and, and my 11-year-old, and they're like little troopers. They helped. They actually helped um, free some cows under the tree after it had fallen. No, no he, he's very good. He actually attends Mervinoff Primary School. So he can't go to school either because they got hit quite bad at Mervinoff. And, and you yeah, mentioned had our, you've had to dump milk. Do you have any idea how much milk you've had to dump? Um, we were lucky enough that we, we, it was probably about 500 litres of milk we dumped because we managed to milk the cows before the power went off. Um, so we didn't milk them yesterday, but last night we got the electrician to um, find a generator for us to wire into our shed um, so we could at least milk the cows. Um, and refrigerate the milk for today for the milk to be picked up. But other than that, we we don't have power, and we don't know when the power is coming back on. Power, and you even said at the start of this call, Lisa, you, you've lost power in some of these similar storm or, or weather events in, in Gippsland before. Is it frustrating, I suppose, mm-hmm. the level of service you're getting with power at the moment? Very frustrating, and especially this time around when all the um, internet access and stuff has been down as well. We can't. We can't ring out. We can't find out emergency alert. I had to drive into our nearest town last night just to sit in front of the post office to get Wi-Fi to look on the emergency app to see when power may be coming back on. It's very frustrating. 
Sounds like a very frustrating but also pretty scary situation. I'm just really glad that uh, Lisa and her family were safe. That is Colville farmer Lisa Hilbrick speaking with Warwick Long. And the good news is that we can report that Lisa had her power restored this morning. Conversations. Spend an hour in the life of someone else. One of the senior academics said to me, Have you thought about applying for a PhD? I went, nah. Someone who's seen and done remarkable things. My shoes fell off and I thought, I'm going to throw up. Gareth Evans grabbed me in this kind of monkey grip, says, You can do it. And in that moment I went, damn right, I can do this. Hear the latest conversations. Weekday mornings from 11 on ABC Radio. Or anytime on the ABC Listen app. Now, would you describe yourself as a lapsed learner or a carefree complacent? Or maybe you're more of a doubting dweller. These are actually some of the archetypes that have been identified in some new research that's come out today on the Country Fire Service. And each of them describes the attitudes toward what well, South Australians have towards bushfire preparedness. It paints a pretty interesting picture of the public's attitudes towards fires, including that more than half of South Australians would wait until they're threatened by a fire before leaving. And that is a statistic that does concern, but sadly doesn't surprise the CFS. The CFS's Director of Community Risk and Resilience, Alison May, explained when I spoke with her earlier. The CFS is increasingly recognising that um, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to engaging with the community and messaging that will mean something to them and help them understand what they need to do uh, when faced with a bushfire. So, In order to meaningfully impact behavioural change and empower communities to be better prepared, uh, we commissioned a piece of research that dug a little bit deeper than just defining people according to demographics or their geographical um, location. So by looking at archetypes, what we call archetypes of behaviour and beliefs, it means we can dig down um, into really what makes people tick, the ways that they're um, willing to be fed information and what will help them better absorb that information and act on it. Okay, so give us an idea because I understand you came up with a a number of archetypes uh, that sort of described how different people may react. Um, What what were some of the archetypes that, that you came up with? Yeah, so it was based on a a framework that um, we produced out of a number of of workshops with the researchers that um, identified eight different archetypes and we have nicknames, if you like, labels for each of those categories like uh, urban transitors, so that's people that um, may not live in a high-risk area but uh, frequently travel to or from work or on holidays through those areas. Um, We have carefree complacents, busy intenders, so that I I think a lot of people could relate to. It's having a bushfire survival plan and doing all the right things is on your to-do list, but in the daily priority list of things that need to be done, you just never quite get there. Um, There's doubting dwellers, so people that do dwell in higher risk areas that sort of don't fully believe that it's ever going to happen to them or that they really need to worry about it. Uh, There's lapsed learners, so um, people who once upon a time were quite vigilant but just um, that's gone by the wayside. And, yeah, so a number of others that um, we found were um, the appropriate descriptions of people's behaviour. And did people tend to fall into one of those categories more than others of those who you, you survey? 
Yeah, so the um, there wasn't a clear majority in any of the categories. So um, it was there was a reasonably even spread across uh, the categories as a whole. But the second highest prepared category, which is the prepared defenders, that had the highest percentage, which was twenty percent. So um, there, as I say, not a big gap between. Um, a lot of them, but there were some uh, that were 10%, some 15%, but the highest percentage for any one was 20%. How far were you able to drill down as to whether certain people were more likely to fall into a certain category depending on their demographic, where they lived, those sorts of things? Yeah, so um, it did allow us to produce some maps for regions so that we know um, in a particular region what type of archetype we're more likely to be speaking to. So with our messaging and our community engagement activities, we can we can try to tailor those uh, a little bit. So, for example, the most prepared archetypes uh, we found in the Hills and Flurio regions and, of course, not surprisingly, on Kangaroo Island based on um, recent experience. And the least prepared archetypes we found in the, the arid lands of the state, the Murray lands and the river lands. Uh, and I imagine in terms of where you'd like people to fall within these archetypes, things like your carefree complacence and your doubting dwellers, I imagine from a, a an agency perspective, you'd like as fewer people as possible to fall into those categories? Yeah, absolutely. But um, understanding why people fall into those categories, having some insights around that is really helpful for us to, to help, you know, get them to that tipping point of perhaps... Um, moving into a, a slightly more prepared category. Um, we, we found overall that a higher number of participants uh, indicated that they would stay and defend as opposed to leaving early. And um, that is a bit concerning, um, especially given that the findings demonstrated that more people assume they will have enough time to leave um, which we know uh, from experience isn't always the case. So um, having that sort of, oh, yeah, I'm, I'll stay until I start seeing smoke or um, I'll stay until it starts to get uncomfortable is not really a plan because by the time you're uncomfortable, it's potentially very unsafe to leave and yet you're not really prepared to stay and defend. So understanding those behaviours and those tendencies is really important for us to make sure that we really reinforce that messaging around staying um, and what leave early truly means. It doesn't mean (laughs) leaving before you get burnt. It Mm. means potentially leaving the night before on a catastrophic day. Another one of the findings that was not entirely surprising but concerning was that there was a low level of um, participant numbers who had actually written bushfire survival plans and even lower percentage of participants who'd considered alternative plans if their primary one failed or couldn't be enacted. So that's something that um, we just can't emphasise enough, taking even if it's five minutes so that if you're afraid or uh, it's a really bad day and a crisis starts to unfold, you've at least got somewhere to start that you've discussed with your family or um, with your neighbours. So that is a disappointing finding, but unfortunately not a surprising one for us. And that goes to the question of how then, as an agency, you use this information and you touched on this before about sort of tailoring it to to areas where you know perhaps you have a high level of people who've said, well, we want to stay and defend, who might not be 
fully prepared for the realities of that or areas where you've got uh, people who are perhaps a bit more doubting or complacent to tailoring the messages that the CFS is sending out to better prepare those uh, those different groups? That's exactly it, you know, to, to um, align our messaging with um, people's different learning preferences, their values, their beliefs, to, to make sure that what we're talking about does reflect and people can reflect those things and people can relate um, is obviously going to have a lot more impact. Um, it's about meeting people where they are rather than just um, continuing down that path of just repeating over and over and over. Um, if it's complacency, then really unpacking why it is that um, people feel complacency. If it, you know, it just never quite gets to the top of the priority list, how can we make it a priority for people um, by understanding what matters to them? And I, Alison, this all goes back to what the, the role of the CFS is not just as some people might think, turning up when a fire starts, making the role of uh, of the CFS and of your volunteers easier by people taking that responsibility to be fully prepared and, and have a good comprehensive understanding of exactly what the threat is and what they do need to do. Yeah, that's such an important thing uh, that, you know, our volunteer firefighters are just amazing humans and what they're trained and what they're willing to do is um, something I'm in awe of on a daily basis. So anything that we can do to reduce the prevalence of their call-outs and reduce the risk of situations when they are called out is just so important. So helping people understand that they have a responsibility, not just for themselves and their family, but to our volunteers to not put themselves in risky situations that then mean that we need to go in uh, when we really would prefer not to, to bail them out or deal with the situations that they've created. So um, that preparedness really is a, a responsibility that we're asking the community to take seriously. Alison May there, the Director of Community Risk and Resilience with the Country Fire Service. It's almost time for the one o'clock news. Nikolai Balharts will be bringing you afternoons again on this Friday. Hello, Nikolai. Hello. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you as well. What have you got for us today? Well, uh, heads up early that at uh, 1.30 we'll be heading to the cricket. So if you do want to continue to listen to the Afternoons program again, the ABC Listen app, the digital radio, streaming, TV, Channel 25, all those are your options to listen to the program past half past one. And I'm sure you will want to because we've got lots of interesting things to chat about. We spoke yesterday on the program with the Australian Counselling Association. Uh, They've been calling on the South Australian government to have more counsellors put into schools uh, to help particularly with the seemingly growing number of mental health issues um, young people are facing these days. So we'll hear from the South Australian Education Department to find out um, what they make of that call. And also speaking of music, we will have the best of as well. We like to take a look at the best of a certain kind of music. And this afternoon, we're looking at the best cover songs, which is, uh, you know, it's brave to do a cover because usually you're doing a cover of a song that's really good good already. Uh, And so how do you decide... This is a task we're going to 
undertake. So we'll take a look a bit of look at the, the history of, of cover songs and um, mostly the times that it's gone right and maybe one or two of the times it hasn't Sometimes it doesn't well. go so right. <laughs> no. Sometimes the cover is better than the original. Well, this is the thing, and sometimes the cover sounds nothing like the original. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it's an interesting, interesting part of the musical world. So we'll look at that this afternoon as well. Sounds like a great one coming up. Have a great show. Thank you. Nikolai Bellhart, so make sure, yeah, you check out the ABC digital channels if you'd like to uh, make sure you listen to Afternoons. Thanks so much for your company today. It's time for the news. It's one o'clock. Can't remember the talkback number? Download the ABC Listen app and tap your local ABC radio station to call or messages direct from the app. Join the conversation. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.